up your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. We're going to do some reading from a few Old Testament books to start off tonight, and the first one will be in Deuteronomy 26. Thank you for being here this evening. It's my hope and prayer that it's profitable and worthwhile for us to examine some of the things that we see in God's Word and take a look at this concept that I have so creatively titled First Fruits. Uh, that's all I've got, First Fruits. Tonight, I want you to try and put yourself into the shoes of the children of Israel. You have been brought out of Egypt. You have children who are going to inherit this land, this land flowing of milk and honey. And they do. And they're going to work the ground, and they're going to try and take advantage of every part of, of that promise of milk and honey. And so they spend hours upon hours upon hours working in extreme conditions trying to bring about a crop. And finally, we have what are called the first fruits. They arrive. The first of the harvest, oftentimes considered the best of the harvest. What would you do with it? What would you do with your first fruits when they have arrived? Maybe you would sell them if you're, you know, thinking logically. You would sell them. Be the first to market with your first fruits. Maybe, maybe you would store it because you know that in this area, rain is scarce. Drought is common. And from what I read, something as a simple strong wind coming from the west could completely ruin the rest of your crop that you're expecting to come in. Maybe if you're like me, you would be tempted to eat it, or in their case, turn it into something that could be eaten. Or maybe you need to feed a herd or a flock with it. In the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, God gives some instructions to the children of Israel. He says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And as he continues on speaking, you go down to verse 15, 
there's almost a, a prayer that's asked for from whoever is giving this offering of first fruits. Verse 15 says, Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. God had different ideas for the first fruits of the land, the best of the land. When the very beginning of that harvest would happen, God said, give that back to me, knowing that I am the one that has blessed you with it to begin with. There's another account of this. The other account we'll read is Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23, where God is giving more instructions to the children of Israel, and he's talking about the feast of first fruits that there was to be associated around the Passover. And Leviticus 23, starting in verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And it wasn't a lot. It was just one sheaf. could have been carried. But it was to be given in faith as a sacrifice. And in giving, you were trusting God by faith that he would provide a greater harvest that was to come. In that same chapter of Leviticus, in verse 16, it talks about how you shall count. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. But not only did you have to give of the first of every fruit that you had that came out of the ground, but you had to give the best of your flock. We're aware of that, right? And sacrifices. And verse 22 of this same chapter in Leviticus says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. And so all of these sacrifices are actually kind of starting to add up all of the best of what you have, you're sacrificing. You're sacrificing it to God in faith, knowing that he would provide you. And so maybe your children that have entered into this land of milk and honey, they do that. They give of their best, and they are blessed, and the land of milk and honey lives up to its name. But as generations go on, Others neglect it. They don't acknowledge God. They serve other gods, and they serve themselves. And not surprisingly, most of our Old Testament that we have ends up with war and drought and famine and a complete lack of peace. And it even gets to the point where the last book that we have in our Old Testament, Malachi, we read, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. This is God speaking, and he's saying that they have robbed him of this tithe. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What a powerful statement. That's not something that we would expect to just casually open up to and read in our Bibles. For God to say, put me to the test. 
and see if I will pour out a blessing for you. I don't spend this time just kind of going through this just to give an Old Testament history lesson. But while I was studying this concept, there were some strong parallels to what I see in my life and so many of the lives of others that I have encountered. And so tonight, I really just have three things, three things that I want to consider when we talk about this concept of first fruits. And number one is that too often I have not given what is first and best in all aspects of my life. Rather, I'm just giving him what is left over. We saw the same thing with the children of Israel. Just as God called for the first and the best part of every part of their life, he does the same in ours. Jesus said in Matthew 22 to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Paul, in a very applicable verse that we have here tonight in Romans 12, said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When we talk about first fruits, usually the topic is monetary giving. That's usually what we like to hit on, and we talk about what we give on Sunday. That's a very valid thing to talk about, very worthwhile, but I think that sometimes we might fall short. I think we fall short of discussing everything else in our lives. Am I giving God the best of my time, not just my money? Am I giving God the best of my mind? Am I giving him the best of my heart, or is it just closed off? Am I giving God the best of my service and my energy? The more that I think about these things, the more that I realize, for starters, just as God is the one that gave the children of Israel their first fruits, their harvest, he's the one that's given us our time. He's the one that's given us our life. And so who am I to just completely ignore God throughout the day? Who am I to not give him the best of my time, but maybe rather the time that is just coincidentally enough not occupied by anything else of the 50 things that we have to do from sunup to sunset? If you would, flip back to the book of Genesis. This is one of the first examples that we have of the concept of first fruits. Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis 4, we read in verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. We know this story doesn't have the best of endings, but the book of Hebrews gives us a little bit more detail to this. We, we get just a real small blurb there in Genesis, but Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. But I want you to notice something in this. You know, Cain still brought an offering. I think too often in my life, when I think about my life as a living sacrifice before the, my Creator, the God who made the world. Maybe it's just a little too easy to think that, well, I'm, I'm giving something. And I, it's easy to look down the street and say, I, they're not giving anything. 
I, I know, you know, the people that I work, they're not, you know, that guy's not giving anything. Cain gave an offering. That doesn't mean that it was by faith. And it likely was not his best. Whereas Abel came, and we read in Hebrews, he gave a better offering. He gave it by faith, and he gave God his best. Am I offering up to God the leftovers in my life? Or am I giving him what is first and best? And along with that, when I don't give God the best in my life, I shouldn't be surprised with the spiritual results. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the Old Covenant, God promised that if they gave their first and their best, that he would provide for them physically. Right? That's what we just read about with the first fruits. If they gave the first of the land, that he would provide a greater harvest in the future. In this New Covenant... God gives us a similar promise, but not a physical providing. He tells us that if we give the best of our lives, that we will be spiritually transformed. If we give the best of who we are, and all those things I mentioned of time and my mind and my heart, that he will mold and shape our lives. I've got just a few listed here, but one, in Matthew 11, Jason actually talked about this in his building blocks class this morning. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paul wrote in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I have one more that's not going to be up on the screen, but in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, we read in chapter 4, starting in verse 12, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then down in verse 15, what we actually use for the Lord's Supper this morning, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We read all these. We hear these verses all the time. And yet far too often in my own life, and what I've heard in others is almost just a confusion as to why I'm just not that interested in God right now. It's almost a mystery sometimes. God just seems distant. I know that I haven't given him the best. I haven't drawn near to him. I haven't poured out my heart in prayer. But it still just seems like a question mark. We act like I don't know what to do about it. And I've noticed that this is one of the only areas of life that we do this with. If a student were to wake up having not studied for a test and spent 10 minutes studying for their test while eating breakfast and watching Netflix in the morning and then did poorly on that test, no one would be surprised. We wouldn't act confused. I know we have a lot of, we have a lot of runners in this congregation. We have some people that have done a lot of training for running, and so if I were to walk up to one of you and say, 
you are able to run so far and I can't make it out the back door without being winded. Why is that? Well, they might say, well, what, what do you eat? What's your diet? And I would say, well, whatever I want, whenever I want. And then they would say, well, do you exercise? Do you go to a gym? And I would say, well, right now I'm averaging about once a month. And then they would say, maybe what do you do when you go there? And I would whatever I feel like, but I don't want to push myself too hard. We wouldn't act surprised by any of that. But yet when it comes to faith, we go through these lulls. I know so many, including myself, who have just been stuck. And I will be here and I will sit in a pew, but God just seems distant. And I act confused by it. But when I don't give God the best of my heart in prayer, as we read in Philippians, I shouldn't be surprised that I may not have that peace that passes all understanding. When I don't give God the best of my mind and heart and study and get to know more and learn more about his perfect love and grace, justice and mercy, I shouldn't be surprised when I feel unchanged, unlike what we read in Hebrews about the word of God piercing to the innermost part of ourselves. When I don't give these things, I shouldn't be surprised at a lack of joy in my life. So often look around and there are people and you say, I, they have so much joy. I just don't know how they have joy and I just don't. Or they, they know so much scripture. They know so much about the Bible. And I just don't understand how they have so much knowledge and I just, I don't, I don't think I do. Or I'm, I'm just not that interested. If I pour out my heart to God, he has a guarantee that he will change me and that I will not stay in this state. There's a poem that was turned into a hymn years ago, and it was written by a woman named Annie Johnson Flint. And if you can hear through some of the old English in this, I think there's something beautiful. It's about God's promises. She says, God hath not promised skies always blue, flowers strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God hath not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no guide. Never a mountain rocky and steep, never a river turbid and deep. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials and help from above, unfailing sympathy and undying love. When we think about first fruits, just think that God promises to guide us if we give the best of ourselves to him. And number three, this evening, God uses these first fruits to show his promises are eternal. If you would, one more passage that we'll read from tonight, flip over to the book of 1 Corinthians. This will be our last one, 1 Corinthians. Most of the time when the term first fruits is used in the New Testament, it's often referring to just the first of something. So maybe the first Christians in an area could be referred to as the first of almost a spiritual harvest, right? And so we read about the first fruits of Achaia. But there is one or two times where the term first fruits is used in our New Testaments, and it goes far deeper than just that. And one of those is here in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Paul tells the story of a Passover that took place, just like the Passover that we read about in Leviticus, where there was the Feast of first fruits. He tells the story of a Passover that took place, but on this one, Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified. Not only was he crucified, but he raised on the third day. Not only was that day the first day of the week, but that day just so happened to be the day when the sheath that we talked about in Leviticus was to be presented to the priest as a sacrifice. You can't make these things up. Jesus was raised on the exact same day that the first fruit was to be taken and offered. And so Paul, in this book, is dealing with those who doubt the resurrection, the concept of a resurrection. It's pretty hard to get our minds around. But so we read the concept of first fruits, beginning in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul said that God gave the best of heaven to earth, let him die on a cross, raised him from the dead as a firstfruit, as a promise, just as he promised those children of Israel that there would be a greater harvest if they gave their lives to him. He gives us Jesus as a promise that there would be a greater harvest later. Death would not be the end for his people. But that ultimately, all in Christ could have eternal life. And we have that promise, that first fruits promise. And so tonight I ask, have you given God your life in faith? Have you given him your best? If not, why not? What's holding you back? He makes the promise to transform you and transform your heart and your soul. And he makes the promise that one day this life will not be the end, but that you can have eternal life with him in heaven. If there's any change that you need to make this evening, don't hesitate. Come forward now while we stand and sing.